go to Acts chapter 2. We're on part five of a series on gospel community. Part one was about devotion, the centrality of the gospel. It is the gospel which just flows out of forming gospel community, obviously. That people would have devotion, the early church had devotion to the apostles' teaching, which is the gospel. Part two was we talked about quiet times, devotional, to hear God's voice in the midst of the noise of our society. And in our church, we've been practicing doing quiet time and then sharing about what the Lord is speaking to us in our community groups. And I urge you to join a community group and um, practice the quiet times and let that be a central thing, a, a form of breaking bread, so to speak. And that was part two of the message. Part three and four, we talked about how they devote themselves to breaking bread. In gospel community part or three, we talked about meals and hospitality and the patterns of the way we eat meals together. And two weeks ago, I know we've been taking a little while to go through a series because we have all these missionaries come in and all these different, and then I went on vacation and then we had retreat. But part four was we had, we had a message about the Lord's Supper and how the Lord's Supper is the meal that the Lord prepares for his people and binds them together into unity. Today, I'd like us to shift one of the first of two messages where it says that they devoted themselves to fellowship. Today, I'd like to talk about fellowship. And I've, I've entitled this message the fellowship of grace and how it, is, it goes beyond natural affinities, how the fellowship from grace is more than just the natural ways that human beings tend to clump and gather together. And so with that said, let's go to Acts chapter 2. Again, we'll read this. When we've been reading this passage multiple times. This is what the early church looked like. It's a beautiful and remarkable picture of what kind of fellowship they had. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. This is the word of God. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul. That's what I'd love to see happen in our church. That as we do this, the Lord will do something so wonderful in us that awe would come upon us. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Love to see wonders and signs. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. This is their fellowship. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let me pray for this message and um, and then let's get into it. Lord, we want this kind of fellowship, Lord. We We want a fellowship only you can provide, a supernatural kind of fellowship. And... We do know that it isn't just us who long for this, but people, the whole world longs for a fellowship which is greater than we're used to, you rather that we can make. And so, 
pray today that we would see it with open our eyes to see the kind of fellowship that you provide. This, this is the meal that you've set before us, this type of fellowship, Lord God. And I pray we would long for it, run after it, believe in it, and you would provide it in Jesus' name. Amen. And let me tell you something a little bit about what's going on here. This is Pentecost. This is a feast that normally gathers Jews from all around the world. And that's what's happening. Jews of every tribe and every ethnicity, so we're not just talking just Palestinian Jews from this area. They've all come into Jerusalem. They hear this preaching from Peter. 3,000 of them get saved, and this church gets formed. This is the first church. The first early church gets formed, and Christians throughout the age have been reading these verses about what this early church looked like, and they marvel at this, and they keep longing to go back to this thing. Not just only because it's beautiful, but I think it's good and right. Not only think that some miraculous happened back then, but this is how God does the church. Now look, I want to talk about something today about fellowship. The way we typically handle fellowship and the word in the church, fellowship, is such, it's such a corrupted word. I mean, it's almost like we can't even use the word anymore because when you use the word fellowship, it doesn't mean what it's supposed to mean. It does, this is what it means. You see what this, the way this is? The way they love each other. The way they sacrifice for each other. The way they love eating together. The way they dig into the Bible. The way they, they pray together. This is the fellowship. When the Bible talks about fellowship, this is fellowship. But today, we typically mean things like, you know, we have a fellowship hall at the church, and this is what usually happens. You know, people have like, a, a, you know, a styrofoam cup of coffee, usually bad coffee. <laughs> and you have a very shallow conversation with somebody of a very casual sort, and your eyes wander around the room saying, all right, when can I give up this useless, shallow conversation, go talk to somebody else I'd rather feel like talking to? And... And this is milling about. And notice, you know, some people don't even want to stick around for that. They worship and then boom, they split. Because who wants that? And this is what we call fellowship. That's like the word, and it's not fellowship. Or sometimes it just means I like hanging out with the people that I hang out with. I like the things that they like. They like the things that I like. These are my homeboys. And this is what we like when we come to church. But that's not... Anything different than what all other people outside the church do too. They like to hang out with who they like hanging out with the people that like the food they like, the movies they like, the activities they like. <laughs> They're in the same socioeconomic bracket, the same cultural bracket, the same education levels. So if you like politics, you, you hang out with your guys who talk about sports, shopping, no matter. And they call this a form of fellowship. Sometimes Christians call this fellowship. But this isn't fellowship as the Bible describes it because that's exactly the same as the world's fellowship. If you took Jesus and the name of Christianity out of it, would it be any different? And yet, when you look, read these verses, it is so different. It is so different, is it not? What I'd like to talk about today is something that I think that the world is so longing for. And I'd like to describe it this way. The world longs for, we talk about this, this is in the conversations everywhere. It's in our movies. It's in the universities. It's in the discourse of the, the mainstream media. If you read Newsweek or if you watch the news, this issue comes up all the time in various ways or another. Our society is powerfully longing for this. So it's not just here in the Bible. They're longing for this, but they don't know how to get there. 
And you hear it in terms like this. The term terminology you hear is the society looks for unity within diversity. Unity and diversity. This is, this early church was profoundly diverse. We, we are talking here, people from every economic bracket, some who are poor, some who are rich, some who are intellectuals, some who are slaves. You are all the different ethnicities. They're right here. This is a type of fellowship. This unity within diversity that our society longs for, it's right here. It's a, it is a historical reality. It's a fact. But this is one of the things that we talk about. And it's so, it's such a big thing. Guys, any, um, any of you have you seen the movie Crash? You're just a few people. So nobody liked that. Nobody watched that movie. It won Best Picture Academy Award. And it got a lot of buzz. But that movie, it's all talking about this issue of unity and diversity. It's about auto accidents that happen on the L.A. freeway and in Los Angeles. A very diverse society racially and so forth. And what it was, that whole movie was talking about exactly what Rodney King asked. Why can't, can't we just get along? Rodney, the answer is no. <laughs> and what that movie Crash was saying is, the answer apparently is no. We can't get along. And here, all this diversity, but there's no unity. No unity. Let me point to another word that, that is strongly looking for what I would say, we call it fellowship but really fellowship of a different kind. And the other word that we hear in our society that we're profoundly longing for is inclusion. Inclusion is what we're looking for. Constantly feeling like you're, you don't want to be the one outside. You don't want to be treated like a second-class citizen. So many of us hate high school, but we watch these movies of high school, and it's like the dweeby kid who's left out or the kind of awkward girl who's not who's left out of the cool girls, right? And we watch these highs, all these movies. Those are, those are, those are fellowship movies. You realize that? They're, they're asking the question of inclusion. Every movie you've ever watched, it talks about race, civil rights, the Civil War. Um, the, the movie that came to mind when I was thinking about this is, was Crash on the Union Diversity Issue. How about this other movie? Who, maybe, see, maybe more of you have seen this movie. Remember the Titans? Who's seen that movie? Come on. That's, that, I think, is a lot better movie, quite frankly, than, uh, than Crash. And probably that movie deserved the Best Picture Academy Award. Didn't win it, but um, was it nominated? I don't know if it was. All right? It got some nominations. I don't know if it got nominated for Best Picture. But remember the Titans. It's about black football players being integrated onto a team in the South with white football players. And one of the subplots in the movie is you have these two guys who are defensive players, left side, right side, strong side, weak side. And they're like, left side, strong side. And these two guys, one's white and one is black. And they're the star players on their, you know, on this absolutely dominating defense. And they become such great friends. One of the, the, the white guy gives up his friendship with other guys because he finds a deep bond of unity and he even says, you're my brother. He tells us to this. Before, they're living in a town where they never walked together. And now he's saying, you're my brother. Right? And when this, at that moving scene toward the end, I'm not trying to, hopefully I'm not trying to ruin the movie, but one of the guys, he ends up in the hospital. And when he ends up in the hospital, he asks, who does he ask for? He has his mom come, and then he asks for his brother, who is 
the other side, defensive guy, the black guy. That's a form, this is inclusion. We're longing for this kind of fellowship in our society. Now, this, let me, um, let me, let me share with you a quote. It's coming up here. Yes, there we go. All right, can you get the light here? I got this quote. I, I've read, I've read big chunks of this book too, but I've got this. This is a quote from a guy named Laman Sane, right? And I got this quote, of course, from the purveyors of all gospel wisdom, who is the purveyor of so much gospel wisdom, and our Tim Keller, right? Pastor Tim Keller. And, um, and this quote is so good. I just had to share it with you. And he raises this question. What made Christianity have this enormous triumph in Rome? And right here in Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, is the seed of what happens over the next few hundred years. At this stage, this, there's only one church, 3,000 Christians at this point. But over the next 300 years, this religion, which is so looked down upon in the Roman time, it's considered this gutter Jewish sect, will conquer the whole empire. And right here you see a seed of how it did so. And he asks, what may Christianity have this enormous triumph in Rome? Why didn't any of the other religious religions and worldviews at the time have this great growth and triumph in this highly pluralistic society of the time? Right? And Sane tries to give us an answer in a book that he calls Whose Religion is Christianity? And uh, one reason, the fourth one, goes like this. Let me read this quote. It's a powerful quote. The fourth reason for Christianity's success is to be found in its, there's that word, absolute inclusiveness. Absolute inclusiveness. What are we longing for in our culture? Inclusion. One of the reasons for Christianity's success was inclusion. Now, let me just just stop for just a moment and say a little something about this. I find it very interesting that in a culture that deeply hungers for inclusion, the reason, one of the things that is very offensive about Christianity to so many people that check, that, that hears about Christianity is our statement of exclusiveness. That is only through Jesus Christ he is the way, the truth, and life. It is through Jesus that you get salvation and no other. This is highly, highly offensive. And I'm sure many of you guys know this. You know, you have your friends or your family members. One of the very reasons they reject Jesus and Christianity and they think Christianity is very arrogant is because of this exclusive claim. But they don't understand that this exclusive claim is the road to this deep thing that they are longing for, the inclusion let me go on. More than any others of its competitor religions, it, that is Christianity, attracted all races and classes. The pagan deities were often tied to certain regions and nations. And even in the days of its most active proselytizing activities, Judaism never overcame its racial boundaries because converts had to become culturally Jewish. So many people think this, don't they? Why do you go to church? Because church, because you came from a religious family. You just, have a, you just have a certain sociology. Or you came from a certain culture. 
And it's very interesting that people, there's certain persons like Monty Ben Gosha who thinks that Christianity is for the white man. And, but Europe is now becoming very post-Christian. And Christianity is booming in Africa. It's booming in Asia. I don't know if you know this, but here in America, actually some of the most vibrant churches are the non-white churches in America. And so this prejudice that some people are only Christian or that they have certain other religions, I think it's true of many other religions and many other worldviews. If you like a certain kind of secular relativism, guess what? You have to have gone to college. The people who are imbibing that tend to be white, Asian, middle to upper middle class. Those are the people who imbibe that secular relativism the most in our society because they're the ones who get educated and buy into that. And they don't, most of those people don't think of that as a religious worldview that have a, has a particular sociological niche, but it is. Right? But even back then, they thought that you believe in this particular religion because you came from this culture, you came from this part of the city, or you came from this educational background. But Christianity began to explode that. They're breaking those boundaries. Let me go on. Christianity, however, gloried in its appeal to Jew, Gentile, African, barbarian. That's a mix of people that don't like each other, by the way. <laughs> they don't eat with each other. They don't hang out with each other. And they just as soon slit each other's throats in the street. And there were riots. The Romans would actually build up walls and say, you barbarian, you over there, you African, you over there, Jews, you stay over there. Because this is the only way we keep the street if we segregate. They would actually forcibly, the Romans would forcibly segregate these people. And yet... In the church, they were calling each other brothers. The philosophers of Greece and Rome, on the other hand, appealed to the educated only and could never win the masses. The elite's viewpoints. It was one of the charges against Christianity that drew the lowly and uneducated multitude that that its essential teaching was so simple that anybody could understand it. Yet Christianity also developed a philosophy that converted some of the greatest minds in the society. Christianity, too, was for both sexes, and women were active in its work, while two of its main competitor religions were almost exclusively for men. We've got movements today where just the guys get together, you know, that Burning Man thing. It's it's mostly a guy's thing. And if you ever walk in any university today and sit in a women's study class, there probably won't be a lot of guys in that room. Right? And that's a form of kind of secular religion, certain kind of feminism. But not so with Christianity back then and today. Finally, the mystery religions were mainly for the rich. Initiation was very expensive. There was no other religion that took in all groups. Absolute inclusiveness. Took in all groups and all stratas of society. Let me get to this, and here's the, and here's the conclusion. I love this point. The one tenable explanation of Christianity's inclusiveness was probably its teaching of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Here it is. The very thing that secular folks don't like about us is the, is its power itself. The uniqueness of Jesus Christ. For, if, and please pay attention, this is, I think, such an insightful point by Sane. For if Jesus was not a teacher showing the way of salvation, this is, of course we know that Jesus is, a, is that, but it's not all that the Bible says that Jesus is. Not, 
just, not merely a teacher showing the way of salvation, but the Son of God who accomplished salvation. Then members of both sexes and all races, the learned and the unlearned, the high and the low, the able and the non-able, might all be able to share in the salvation made possible in Christ. You hear what Sani is saying? Every religion has a figure that says, do X, Y, Z and don't do A, B, C. If you go this way, this will make your life full. This will fulfill you. This will be, take you to salvation. Buddha has a way. The um, Muhammad taught the five pillars. This is the way to salvation. You can go to Tony Robbins and he'll teach you how to give you a rich and successful and full life. He's kind of a secular self-help guy. And there's so many different kinds of ways. There's some person who's a guru. They'll take you to this way. It's the way to salvation. They teach you how to do it. They teach you how to do it and then it's on you to do it. But Christianity in the gospel, and it's the only message like it, says that Jesus isn't a shower of a way. He is the way. He is the one who accomplished salvation in our place. And only if you believe in that, and then you are saved in what he has done, which we could not do for, for ourselves, only then can all these different kind of people be included. This is what Sane sees. It's the gospel itself the uniqueness of Jesus himself, what he has accomplished, which empowers this special kind of fellowship. Now let me talk a little bit about, let me shift. We're talking about uniqueness of Jesus. We're talking for longing for this special kind of fellowship that goes more than this. And I want to say a little something about, and I've, and I've already made a critique a little bit about how we do things in the church, but let me say one, let me say a little something about obstacles. How come we don't often feel this or experience this special, this incredible kind of fellowship that we see here in Acts chapter 2? How come so many churches aren't like that? And, and, and let me offer um, a little, little picture here. Um, most of you guys know my son. <laughs> know my son, Hudson. I've got one boy. He, he's, he's, he's one of my pride and joys. Um, and my son, Hudson. But let me tell you a little something that's not good about Hudson, right? which is that he is a picky eater. <laughs> and boy, is he a picky eater. It is annoying. <laughs> this is a boy that likes pizza, but don't like hamburger. What the heck kind of American boy does not like hamburger? When we go to McDonald's, he only eats chicken nuggets. <laughs> Big Mac, no, right? You know that if we go to Red Robin, he orders like chicken fingers, while my wife and I eat, like, you know, great, juicy, you know, God bless beef. <laughs> Burger, right? But my son doesn't eat hamburger. My son takes a look at food, and it's guilty until proven innocent. You know that? And my wife is constantly always trying to widen out his repertoire. Because, but his approach toward food is he knows what he likes, and he's only going to like what he has already tasted, and he's only already going to eat what he already knows that he likes. And so his experience of food is very narrow. Is it not? So, <laughs> you know how, like, I, when I watch him, when we're at Red Robin, I just look at him thinking, like, you're so dumb. <laughs> Boy, I love you, but man, you're so dumb. <laughs> and, 
And in some days, my wife pushes him. You have to try this. You have to try this. He's like, and, and I go, you're going to like it, man. You're going to like it. So for the longest time, he would not eat shrimp. But now he eats shrimp tempura. He, he now eats that. I mean, it took, it took years of my wife prodding him, pushing him, and making him eat it. But now he likes it. So he's slow like this. And why am I telling you this weird little story about this little thing that we struggle with in our own home with my, my foolish son? Because when it comes to fellowship, I think we're so much like him. We're so much like him. The churches are like a market these days. You got the Korean churches for Koreans. It's actually even worse than that. There's the... Korean church for upper crust Koreans that like hymns. There is the Korean church for people who like louder music and for people who, who work in a little bit more working class communities. You know, that gets even worse than that. When we go to church and when we want to have fellowship, we already know the people that we want to hang out with. They typically within a certain racial, ethnic boundaries. They're within Certain age range, I only want to hang out with 20-somethings. A young man told me not long ago that he came to our church, checked us out, and then he didn't come back because he didn't see enough college students. Right? I was thinking, gee, okay. Right? And he told me that. I mean, he flat out told me that. He admitted that. He said that with uh, contrition and with humility. And he admitted that that was foolish. Right? But we're all like him. We show up in the church and how many people are within my age range? That's whether you're in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s or your 50s. Everybody does this. So ethnicity, age range, education background. Do they like the things that I like? People, do they like sports? Do they like this TV show? Do they like the foods that I like? I gotta find people that I can hang out with, that I can connect with. We already think we know the people that we can connect with. You know, you're, we're just doing the Hudson thing. <laughs> That's all we're doing. We're just doing the Hudson thing. We're showing up at the meal that Jesus sets before us, and we already think we know how to eat it. But we don't. We don't. And so, Hudson, I, I'm, you know, is probably you know, I'm just I'm probably, Jesus, I'm sure, looks at me and all of us and kind of does what I do to Hudson at Red Robin. Come on. <laughs> Come on, right? Because we think we know. We narrow this thing out. And we only go and hang out with the people that we already think that we like. We only go and hang out with the people that we already think can, can connect with us or can connect with me. And so, you know what we're doing? We're imposing all the worlds of worldly Natural affinity. This is how we do fellowship. I'm looking for the people that I can naturally connect with. All my normal preferences. And then we know, and the more picky you are, and the more of those you, think of how many? Ethnicity, race, age, education, interests, background. How about if they're just pretty enough? How about the clothes that they wear? I mean, you just start adding these up. How many filters you gotta have? And the more you do this, and you, we wonder why we don't experience this deeper kind of fellowship. Because we're literally cutting it out. And yet here, if we would do this, you understand what this is? Fellowship, such a corrupted word in the church. And yet, 
It's so important. It is so important. If people would come to the church, if you were to go to a church and you would experience fellowship like this, wouldn't you go back? If your non-Christian friend were to come to church and were to experience fellowship like this, don't you think they might tell somebody else? And there's all these seminars and all these things that's going on in the church today. If we have a snazzy website, if we have all these... I know she's mortified here. If we have a snazzy website, if we do all kinds of clever marketing techniques, we'll attract people to the church. But right here, Acts 2, 42-47, tells us, if you have supernatural fellowship, people will... A friend will tell a friend and will tell a friend. And they will come. It says they were, no, people were being added to their numbers day by day. Supernatural, gospel, grace, fellowship. You want them secret? Some people may come to church and go, the pastor, I don't even really understand what he's saying. Some people will go say, the music, eh. The programs, eh, they kind of work for me. But if you meet this fellowship... You don't even need, you don't even need a good website because the word will just spread. And isn't it very ironic? In this day and age, because we're such good consumers, we're very skeptical about all the marketing techniques, aren't we? So in this odd day and age, what is a very powerful form of convincing us? The most powerful form of persuasion is when you meet somebody that you respect and you trust and who's honest and they say to you, I went to this church and I saw something. You've got to check this out. Word of mouth. Still, in this weird, this very sophisticated day and age when everybody's trying to get at you through your phone, through the internet, <laughs> there's clever little advertising ploys within TV shows and movies, it's still word of mouth. Fellowship. Right. Now, let me just tell, say, give you two little illustrations, two examples, and then we'll close out this message, right? Let me tell you something. This kind of fellowship, it's happening. The gospel is being sown in this church. Not just here in the English ministry, it's happening in, in the youth ministry. Right? When the staff gets together, the pastoral staff gets together, we are, we are all on one page about this. And this is what we are excited about. This is what we spur each other onto. J.W., the, the children's ministry pastor, this is what he's doing to our kids. This is what Frank is doing in the next room. This is what's happening over there in the Korean ministry. This is what's happening in this room. The gospel is being sown. And this type of fellowship, I mean, maybe not quite as grand and as obvious as this yet, but the seed of this grace fellowship is starting to happen in this church. Let me just give you two quick examples. One, it happened in Bishop. Anybody who went to the missions trip, every single night, you know, before we went to bed, we would have this debriefing meeting. And here's, and we would go. We would go to the, the, the kitchen team, you know, the food preparing team, and they would talk. And most of those were women were, you know, they were the, they were older Korean women, and they would say it in Korean. And then we'd go to the handyman team, and then we'd go to the medical team, and then we'd go to the VBS, and each person. And we were talking about a team here now, Ranging from age 8 to 83, four generations. We're not even just talking first generation Korean Americans and second generation. We're talking first, 1.5, second, third generation. We're talking a span 
And even on the first generation, you have like three generations there. There's like four generations. There's a generation gap. There's a language gap. There's a culture gap. And yet in this room, if you went there every single night, there was a powerful unity. You had older people respectfully and gladly listening to kids share what they saw in Jesus. And we have a powerful night of prayer each night. And there's just happiness Throughout the day, throughout the day in Bishop, you'd have Native Americans off the reservation. They would just come into the church and just hang out with us. Some of us maybe were mooching food, but I don't think they were just mooching food. You know what they were? They were, they wanted fellowship. And they knew that this fellowship was different. They knew it was different. They're coming in to experience this. It was amazing. I remember just many times just sitting there at Bishop just thinking, is this really happening? I can't believe this is happening in a church, in our Korean church. Because I've never really seen, quite frankly, I've never seen this happen in a Korean church. It's happening in Bishop. One more example. I'm not trying to make any of you guys feel bad, but if you didn't go to the retreat, you missed something. (laughs) It happened at the retreat. We had a member of the English ministry say this to me. He said, I was surprised because of what was happening at the retreat. And then, and I was like, what do you mean? And he said, well, I didn't think it was going to work. I mean, so his, his idea, so for those of you who don't know, the retreat was a joint retreat with our church, which is primarily Korean-American, and a church from the East Bay, which was primarily Chinese-American. So the, most of those guys are Chinese. And... We didn't know each other. Just a handful of us knew each other from because we had met for the, the preparation of the meeting, but otherwise nobody we didn't know each other. And in two and a half days, we're going to have real fellowship and really meet each other and really share with each other. And what this brother who was saying this to me, he just said, oh, I didn't think it was going to happen. It's like, because that just doesn't happen. People who don't know each other to meet each other, and then they start telling real and serious and personal and sharing and breaking real fellowship. And this guy went around, and during the small group times, so we did it twice, Saturday morning and Sunday morning, he went and listened in on all of the different small groups, and all the small groups were mixed between the two churches, and he was stunned. People were sharing real and serious things, deep and personal things, in front of so-called strangers. It was happening. And, you know, a few days ago, I, I sent out an email that was sent to me from one of the members of, of, the, of the Indelible Grace Church, IGC. Their oldest member of that church is a guy named Tommy Wong. He's one of their key leaders. And he wrote this, he wrote this little piece for their e-newsletter. And he said the exact same thing that our members said. He goes, I didn't think it was going to work. But I listened to people share with each other. It was, it was amazing. And on Saturday night at the campfire, when we of New Hope Church... We did, you know, what we call the, in Korean, we call it Tongsonggido, where we all pray out loud. And we prayed and lifted up their church plant again and again and again. The Chinese brothers said that was incredible. That was so encouraging. It was happening that night when we were crying out in front of campfire before God. One family, between people who never met each other, crossing ethnicities, ages, supernatural fellowship. Look, I know I say this to you every week. It's Jesus, okay? It's Jesus. 
Sonny's saying, saying it, and Sonny is a lot smarter than me. Right? I'm saying it, but trust it because it's right here. God is saying it. It's the scriptures. And it's not just talk. It's fact. It's history. It's happening here. It happened last weekend. It happened in Bishop. And more will happen if we will become this gospel-centric community and let it be all about Jesus. He who is God, who cut a cross to come a very long distance, who became weak like one of us, paid a great price to offer us himself, to offer us his fellowship so that we could have fellowship. This powerful, heavenly kind of fellowship. Brothers and sisters, please run after this fellowship and start repenting of all your Hudson-like pickiness and open yourself up and let Jesus be at the center of it all and see what happens with people who will look at Jesus with you. And we'll experience this together. Let's pray. Lord, what happened at Mission Springs retreat last week? Would you do all the more? What happened in Bishop? Would you do the more? What happened, Lord, when John Har and myself and Sean Ben Gosha, when we met, when we broke the bread of Jesus, and we prayed together, Lord, will we devote ourselves to these things? And you would make Acts 2 happen in our church. Lord, this is why you put it there. You put it in the Bible so that you could give it to us. And now we claim. Now we ask. Now we plead. Now we call on the authority of Jesus, on the worthiness of Jesus, on the blood of Jesus. We ask you, Lord, would you do a great thing in this church and draw people who long for unity and diversity who long for you, who don't know it, to meet you here in our church. Praise in Jesus' name.